This is Radio Maria, a very warm welcome. I'm Edmund Zengeni, and this is As I Was Saying. And if you're a regular listener, you recognise the man who's about to come on the microphone. It's Father Ewan Marley O.P., who's going to be continuing his series on talks on Isaiah. And I believe this morning we are going to have a look at Chapter 6. Good morning, Father. Good morning, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think people recognise my voice, it's safe to say. But, <laughs> um, yeah, I'm going to do Isaiah 6 under the theme of the call of Isaiah. Um, you know, I finished the Book of Wisdom a few weeks ago, and Isaiah is uh, a very long book, uh, complicated too in its history, uh, particularly as it goes beyond the life of Isaiah. And the old view, which people still get taught of, of basically three sections of Isaiah, three or four sections. I think now it's more complicated. It's rather, it's one book. But it's all about the fact that Isaiah prophesied that Israel, or more specifically Jerusalem, Judea, would survive, but not for long. And the book of Isaiah then goes on beyond that to the fall of Jerusalem, which happens after Isaiah's time under Jeremiah, uh, to Babylon, and then also the return of some Jews back to the Holy Land under the Persians. And the three empires, one by one, are involved here. First, Assyria. The Syrian Empire threatens Israel and captures the ten tribes. Then Babylon. Then uh, the Persians. Of course, after that, long after the Book of Isaiah was put together, or at least after it's set, we have the Greeks coming in. Alexander the Great's generals take over, and then the Romans, and then we come to Christ. So the book of Isaiah is uh, a sort of arc of history, and twists and turns of history, but the unity is God. No matter what happens in life and history, God is behind all things, God's in charge, which makes it a you know, great book of God's transcendence, but also the mystery of God. So I want to talk about Isaiah's call, which is unusual that we hear about the call, properly speaking, in chapter 6. You'd expect to hear it in chapter 1, verse 1, you know, the beginning. But actually, it doesn't say very much about it. The first words of Isaiah's book says, The vision of Isaiah, son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahasuerus, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. That's quite important that they are kings. Um, that's the stretch of history in which Isaiah is working. And then we get chapter 2, another sort of introduction, the word that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. You might see here the odd thing here is uh, verses 1 of chapter 1 is a vision which he saw, but chapter 2 is a word that he saw. It seems like a contradiction. Can you see words? But what it means, I think, is that, you know, it's one thing to see, it's another thing to understand. And to see without understanding is not really to see properly. To see with understanding is to see the vision as a sort of word, a message, a saying. It is speaking to us. It's saying what God is saying to us. And there are many strange symbols and strange visions we find in the Old Testament. Uh, many referred to and put together in the vision of John, the Apocalypse. 
But the important thing is to say that it is fundamentally a word of God rather than simply visions, imagery, not just strange, meaningless sights. Everything is saying something. Everything has a, has a message in it. And we understand. If we don't understand what we haven't really seen, you can't understand without seeing, but conversely, seeing without understanding is not really proper seeing. It's not the vision that we seek. So, on to chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Now, remember how chapter 1 began concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So, we're right back to the beginning. The first of those kings, the first of the four kings of who sat in Jerusalem and claimed sovereignty over Judea. And yet this is the year that he died. So that's partly happenstance, just what happened, just the timing. But as I say, everything has meaning in these visions. And part of the meaning there is that kings do die. The Lord is king forever. And he doesn't die. He's immortal. He is the one who remains no matter who is in power. That's true still of all earthly powers. Earthly powers come and go. This book of Isaiah has in its background uh, not just the rise of great earthly powers, but also their fall, disappearance, in fact. Whereas God remains. So in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. No explanation of why Isaiah is in the temple. Lots of speculation. He may just have been visiting. Or he may have worked there. He may, in fact, have some job there. He may even have been a sort of temple prophet. That's something that there are hints of in the Old Testament professional speakers who may perhaps just preach, maybe preaching with uh, elements of foretelling, which would have been a dangerous practice, very risky to tell the future or they may simply have been people who read out scripture or gathered it it would involve speaking that's all very speculative but it would be interesting if you think of him as someone who works in the temple as a sort of prophet who suddenly becomes a real prophet it's a bit like that film with Woody Goldberg uh, the one where the, the ghost is it where she's a, a fake medium and a character is killed and then appears as a ghost, at which point she's completely uh, bamboozled because she has a fake medium business. She's just a con woman. Um, Patrick Swayze is the one that plays the ghost. Forget the name of the, the film, but you know the whole plot is, is played for last, but basically having pretended to be a medium, suddenly she's seeing a real ghost and suddenly she realises that what's behind this is real, that actually there are spirits there is life after death maybe an element of that with Isaiah you know that he's not fake he's not pretending but it's not quite real to him not as real as it's becoming this, this call is very real and it's full of vivid imagery but the imagery itself speaks of powers beyond Isaiah's comprehension 
they said it's a word he sees, he understands some of it, but comprehension is not just understanding, it's that deep understanding to the heart of things. There is great mystery here. There's a great unknowing as well as knowing. Great fact that, you know, the reality of, well, reality itself is greater than the human mind. Rather happily today is the Feast of St. John of the Cross, the great Carmelite theologian, and very difficult to read, very austere at times, and yet a writer of beautiful poetry, and he commented on it, but with John of the Cross, there's no getting away from the mystery of things. The mystery of things is greater than the human heart, and that's where the whole theme of John's life, his writings, his poetry, that we seek God. It's not the same as finding him. But in the seeking, we find something of what we need in this earth. But finally, it's only beyond this earth, beyond this life, that we'll come into the vision and the presence of God. Same with Isaiah. However powerful chapter 6 is, he's not really seeing God. He's seeing images of God. He's seeing signs of God. He's seeing things that show him that God is greater than he imagines. The vision of God is not in this life. No one has seen God, it's the first letter to John says, of John. That may be what's meant by the hem of his robe filled the temple. Lots of arguments about that, what does that mean? But uh, personally, I think it clearly means the idea is that all he sees is, um, as it were, the feet the, of God, perhaps, or the hem of his robe, just the, the bottom of it. The, you know, this vastness is greater than the temple itself. The mere fringe at the bottom of his robe, fills the temple. God is greater, greater than that. Sits in the throne high and lofty, but all really Isaiah sees is this, this little part of God at the bottom, this edge of God. That's an image. God isn't actually physical. It's an image of God, but it's an image of God in which God's greatness and is shown more than his fullness. Yet that small part of God, that bottom of God, that uh, it's great, imagine that great statue, so vast that all you see is uh, the, the bottom of it, the feet and the hem of the robe. That greatness fills the temple, utterly. He sees angels too, seraphs were in attendance above him. He should sing six wings, with two they covered their faces and with two they covered their feet, with two they flew. And seraphs are traditionally guarded one of the, the orders of angels, probably means something like fire or burning. And the six wings is also a sense that the, they are both um, visible, imaginable, but also they cannot show as even their being. And angels are created. Even an angel is beyond our imagination, strictly speaking. We cannot imagine these spiritual beings because we always think in earthly terms. They cover their faces, they cover their feet. They can't reveal themselves in their fullness because that itself would be vast and frightening. With two wings, they fly. And when Kalta said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. Well, holy, holy, holy is quite important, of course, because it's the terms we use. We find this repetition in different parts of the Old Testament, but never quite to do with God. Sometimes, in fact, it's more an attempt to make more 
important than we realize. So uh, Jeremiah says, don't keep saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Not the temples are important, but we're reducing the temple to our own consideration. I mean, Jeremiah will say, don't think just because the temple of the Lord is here that Jerusalem cannot fall. The great mistake is to basically tell God what to do or to imagine that God has made a guarantee where he hasn't. And that sort of use of God rather than acceptance of God is to try to turn God to be a proof of our own concepts of life and what life should be is, you know, it's a, it's a sort of atheism or perhaps it's worse than atheism. Here, however, the angels are expressing something else. They're saying that God is above and beyond them. Holy, holy, holy. As we say in the Mass, and it comes from Isaiah. It also shows that holiness for heaven is the fullness of life. It's very different from us, where even at our most pious, we have to accept that we can't spend our whole life doing holy things. We can't live in church. Even as monks have to eat and dress and go to the doctors and things like that. We're always a bit secular. Kind of a life of holiness in that sense, but the angels can and we can too, but not now. And it's interesting also to call to each other. Um, the Hebrew is a bit tight here. It says, this one to that one, it literally says. And they called this one to that one and said, holy, holy, holy. So angels aren't just speaking for themselves, they're speaking to each other. In a way, they express the holiness of God in different ways to each other. Why uh, angelology, you know, the subject of angels, influenced by a man called Dionysius the Areopagite, who probably wrote in the 7th century AD. And Thomas Aquinas follows him, stressed that the angels, in fact, explain God to each other, as well as seeing God directly. Because we only see what we can see, we only see what we can receive into ourselves. We understand, only understand what we can understand. So it's very influenced by this passage. I think the passage may imply this too. Angels don't just speak to God or to themselves, they speak to each other. And I think an analogy I used in a, a sermon once that it's when you sometimes see something amazing, like climb a mountain and you see this fantastic view. And it's so fantastic, say the sun hitting the, the sea and covering it with light. That what we do instinctively is we look at each other as if we need help to see this together. You look at this thing, then you turn away and look at each other, then you look back. You know, sometimes there are wonderful things that we have to help each other to see. And we have to share in that vision. We have to say to each other, just by saying, just by saying, wow, or even just looking at each other. This is so amazing that it's more than I can take. We need this together. I think that's the image of the angel. Now let's say that's the only verse um, three now, uh, the 13 verses, so I may have to continue this next week. But for the moment, I think we've reached a point we can have some music. Yeah, I think that's a great point to have a little bit of music. And uh, thank you so much, Father, for that uh, first insight into uh, Isaiah chapter seven, the call of Isaiah. Here's a little bit of music now. This is Now the Green Blade Rises.
This is Radio Maria. Very warm welcome back. And if you've just joined us, this is, as I was saying, with Father Ewan Marley, OP. And he's been giving us his talk today on Isaiah chapter 6. So, Father, where would you like to pick up from here? Well, as I say, I've only done three verses of chapter 6. Quite a short chapter, mind the 13 verses, but, you know, three verses and still lots to go. But where you have we've said that the holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the angels say to each other, the whole earth is full of his glory, which is, you know, paralleling the fact that uh, the helm of God's road filled the temple. You know, that the earth itself is symbolized by the temple in many ways. Some theories of how the Israelites or Jews built the temple is that they used different colors to represent the different elements, the four elements. Well, it's by the by, but the point is uh, the angels are speaking about the earth, not just the temple, not just Jerusalem, not just Israel. The whole earth is full of God's glory. Going back to the temple, because it then says that the temple itself is uh, affected physically by this presence. The pivots and the threshold shook at the voices of those who called and the house filled with smoke. And that's uh, changing the meaning of the vision a bit. Um, it's frightening, you know. It's wonderful, it's amazing, but it's also frightening. And the presence of God makes the temple itself shake. So the temple represents the earth, it's the earth that's being shaken, which is something which will come up actually in Isaiah. Some of the images that talk about the whole earth being shaken, as in chapter 24. Uh, God is in charge of the earth, God is in charge of human life, but uh, it's uh, a thing of very great limitations and the presence of God is a reminder of just how fragile even this planet is that we live on. Isaiah himself is immediately affected and he turns now from the vision to himself, which is always the case when we see things. It's something we see, but it's also we're the one that's seeing it. And he actually understands that uh, this vision has, well, it's, a, it's not as much a terror as it makes demands on him. And to have seen God is not entirely a good thing because God is pure and beautiful, and he is not. So I said, this is Isaiah speaking, Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, yet my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Pick up now word king, because remember this is the year that King Uzziah died. As I said, the kings come and go, the Lord remains. The true king is God. Unclean lips, curious phrase, um, in a way, it picks up what's going to come. Isaiah is going to become a prophet, and the prophet needs pure lips. The prophet needs to be able to speak the truth. But it's not obvious that the inability to speak the truth or be fully honest and open and concerned is the problem with seeing God. But since God has a mission for Isaiah, it will be a problem. So one of the seraphs flew to me holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. Now the seraph touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. Once again you say, well, why the lips? Surely the heart. 
And in fact, the heart comes up in Isaiah chapter 40, speak to the heart of Israel. Surely the heart is where sin is. But also sin comes from the heart and very often through our mouth, our lips, through what we say, through what we express. Um, letter to James, we read that uh, he talks about how destructive the tongue can be. You know, we tell lies, we abuse people, we hurt people. We ignore people and you know we can do great harm with our, our lips in some ways greater harm than just pure physical violence you can destroy someone or you can entice them into evil so it's not so much about purifying himself as purifying what comes out of himself what he's going to be for Israel and he seems to grasp it because he said, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. A bit different from Jeremiah, which comes in the next generation when Jerusalem does fall. We know he's actually said, Lord, I'm too young, you know, stuttering. The reason Isaiah says, Here am I, send me, is because of this purification. He now speaks the truth. And as a speaker of truth, he's not afraid to speak the truth. This great purification, this strange image of a live coal touching his mouth, burning coal, I think is something which is worked, worked enough to allow him to be the prophet. He can do what he is sent to do. So it's not pride when he says, here am I, send me. It's, it's actually a sort of humility. He acknowledges that he's been given a great gift by God. He acknowledges what God has done for him. And he also knows in himself he can do this because it's not his power, it's God's power. God will speak through him. The seraph touched my mouth with a coal that they take from the altar, which is also interesting that uh, this image, this vision of God isn't a, a pure image from nowhere. It happens in the temple and commentators speculate to what extent the the temple itself is part of the vision. You know, was there actually a burning fire in the temple? Very right, likely. The pair of tongs, was that tongs already there that he used to pick up the live coals, perhaps put them into a, a bowl full of incense, which would then fill the temple with smoke. The imagery certainly fits with the liturgical life of the temple, but it's transformed into something more powerful by the presence of God and his angels. In a way, it's bringing out the meaning of the temple, which up to then, it seems Isaiah had never really understood. So he's sent out to the people. And then another twist, so often in the Old Testament, one of the reasons it's hard to read the Old Testament, it changes very rapidly. You're going to be sent out, but in fact, we're now told, yeah, you will be sent out, you will speak the truth, but actually, it's not going to work. It's not going to work very well at all. So. We're now in verse 9. And he said, go and say to his people, keep listening, but do not comprehend. Keep looking, but do not understand. Make the mind of this people dull and stop their ears and shut their eyes. They may not look with their eyes and listen with their ears. Comprehend with their minds and turn and be healed. Now, these phrases are picked up by no less than Christ himself, of course. He quotes Isaiah here that, you know, his own mission is one where he 
people listening but don't comprehend, look but don't, do not understand. Their minds are dull in the face of the truth. Stop their ears, shut their eyes. It means that he's not saying stop them listening, but when you try to speak to them, they will refuse to listen. So your words of truth will actually lead to them refusing the truth. It's a terrible thought, but it's a thought which is so often confirmed in life, and Christ says this is happening now. Of course, some do listen, but really even the ones that listen, apart from the beloved disciple and his own mother, fail at the end and only come back when, when he arises from the dead and when he sends the Spirit. So Christ's failure is actually already prophesied indirectly or in a way that no one would understand at the time in these words of Isaiah. And then I said, back to Isaiah, verse 13, How long, O Lord, how long will he be doing this? How long will he continue to preach a truth that's not heard? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is utterly desolate. So the Lord sends everyone far away and vast is the emptiness in the midst of the land. Now this is where we have to see the book of Isaiah as a unity compiled, not all written at the time, but compiled sometime about the return of the Israelites to the Holy Land under Cyrus, king of the Persians. Because actually, as we read the book of Isaiah later, when we come to the more prosaic, descriptive parts, you realize that Isaiah actually says Jerusalem will stand against Assyria. The ten tribes will be lost, but Jerusalem will not fall. Judea will survive, which is later, as we hear these stories in chapter 30. But here, look at this phrase, until cities lie waste without inhabitants, now it's about people. The land is utterly desolate. Well, that doesn't happen in Isaiah's lifetime. It does happen to some extent later. So even the fall of Jerusalem doesn't lead to the place being completely depopulated. But that's part of the problem when the Jews come back, they find there are other people there like the Samaritans, the Samaritans that uh, occur in the Gospels. There is a, a general truth then, which in fact goes beyond the time of Isaiah and the time of the writing of the book of Isaiah. Every time we don't listen to God, every time we don't listen to our conscience, our heart, every time we fail to care and be compassionate, it leads to destruction. Cities lie waste without inhabitants, houses without people, the land utterly desolate. Until the Lord sends everyone far away and vast is the emptiness in the midst of the land. When you read these lines, you see it's not surprising that even now Israel is not a land of peace. Always we are failing. I take no sides in the dispute in Israel, but I think we all agree that what's happening there is very terrible. We all agree that we want this to stop. The reality is we have no lasting city, as the letter to Hebrews says. We try and share the world as best we can. Much of our life is exploitation or abuse, much fear, much hostility. But no, sometimes love wins, sometimes justice wins, sometimes life does get back together. We do manage to keep going for a while. The message of Isaiah is fundamentally a message of hope. We shouldn't allow ourselves to think that 
it's all destruction, all failure, all rejection. There is hope. And this hope is going to come up in the end of this chapter. It's a very short verse, but I'll leave this thing till we have some more music. Okay, thank you very much there, Father. So we're going to have another little short music interlude, and this is Teze. This is Radio Maria. A very warm welcome back. You've been listening to, as I was saying here, with Father Ewan Marley OP. And he's been speaking about, to our listeners, Isaiah chapter 6. Oh, back over to you, Father. Okay, well, I'm going to finish chapter 6, it seems, because uh, um just got one more verse. But just to look again at the, the, the last verse of chapter 2, Chapter 6 of the say, verse 12. Uh, Until the Lord sends everyone far away and vast is the emptiness in the midst of the land. I say that's a grim warning, but um, it's it's also a sense of grandeur. It sends everyone far away. That's a new Revised Standard translation. But it says it makes them far. 
And one of the things you may not pick up is that very often the way in which Israel describes its worship is coming near, the opposite of being far. They're quite different words in Hebrew. Um, but, you know, you come near to the altar. Christ says that, says when you come to the altar and you remember you have something against someone, go and make it, make peace with them before you bring the altar. So coming near often is translated as offering. The way you offer something at the altar is to make it come near to the altar. And the people come near to the altar and to the temple. So being made far is being made far from the temple, from the heart of Israel. So it's where worship and community are come together. Because when you come near, you also come nearer to each other. If we all gather in one place, we come near to each other. So this is a separation. But vast is the emptiness, huge. And, you know, that's an experience when you go to empty places. You ever got to the Scottish Highlands, something especially in the winter? You <laughs> think it feels vast. It's not actually bigger than other parts of Britain, but the emptiness feels vast. You know, you feel that great loneliness, great apartness. And that emptiness itself is a sign that... Uh, Failure, you know, it's very moving, obviously. Everybody loves empty space, you know, for a while, but you don't want to live in an empty space forever. You don't want to live in a desert forever. You want to be able to come together, to gather. But the vast emptiness itself is a sign of the longing for community, the longing to be together. And the great image here in this very last verse of chapter 6, which is an image of hope, even if a tenth part remain in it, they will be burned again like a terebinth for an oak whose stump remains standing when it is felled. And that's one says negative, a tree on fire, but the stump remains. A terebinth for the oak. I'm thinking of the way that uh, that tree that was mysteriously cut down in Hadrian's Wall that everybody was a big fuss about, but they're, they're saying maybe they can make the tree grow again. Never be the same, of course. I'll never get that fortuitous position of the, the tree, which was just quite a lovely position between two two slopes. I must say, I've probably seen that tree. I walked along Hadrian's Wall, but I didn't actually notice it. But then uh, I have a vague idea. I do remember seeing a tree there, but uh, sometimes you have to lose things to appreciate what's left. You know, it's, um, it's happened in Britain, I think. We demolished so many wonderful buildings, but it made us appreciate the ones we didn't demolish. Well, that way she ignored everything. So the, the tree standing in the great emptiness itself is an image of hope. The very last bit, the very last words, the holy seed is its stump. And Sarah uh, Kadosh Misabiafa. And translate it in many ways, but um, I would say it's worth looking at the that verse again. Um, holy seed. And seed means something that grows. Uh, I could find that. Uh, let's see, I want to look at that word. Now, the word called stump actually is also translated elsewhere as pillar. Um, and uh, it's translated stump because it's a tree. But it's a pillar, is another word for it. And basically, it means something that stands. Saber, I think, you know, it's something that stands. Um, that's its sort of, term, that's its etymology, something that stands up. Um, let me see if you can find it here. 
not going to find it. Um, looking up this uh, word in its um, lexicon. Here they are. Yeah, it's a monument, a stone that's been set up. So, you know, disconnect with standing very much. Um, it's it's, uh, it's standing because it's made to stand. It's something which is erected. And, then, you know, the, although the, the exact nature of the word only occurs once elsewhere, there's lots of various forms very similar to that using this word and uh, use of sacred stones, pillars in connection with an altar erected, um, obelisks. Uh, like one in Egypt, so a pagan obelisk. And here it's translated as stump of a tree, but I think it's worth remembering that, uh, okay, that might be an image, but it is a metaphor for the tree. And of course, standing stones are very common in temples. Possibly Isaiah is thinking of the tree of Israel as being like a something that's been erected in the temple, a pillar of some sort. And a pillar because it stands is also something which can be, uh, you know, insecure because, you know, if it's lying on the ground, that's it, it's not going to fall anymore. But if it's standing up, it can fall down. But then again, it's good to stand up. I think it's worth remembering that um, the pivots on the threshold shook at the voices of those who called in the house filled with smoke, verse 4. Uh, that sense of the whole temple shaking itself a symbol of the insecurity of things. But, you know, something stands, something is there, something which is holding up the world. And here's this image then, what seems like a very negative image, the tree that's been burnt, which is reduced to a stump. But it means standing when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. Even though most of the tree has come down, there's that root and there's that seed. And that's the hope which this ends with, this Great passage, Isaiah will preach the truth, it will not be heard. Others will preach the truth, it will not be heard. And yet, not everything will be lost. There will always be that, that stump, that holy seed, that pillar which is like the tree burnt but not entirely destroyed. And one day, in God's good time, it will sprout leaves. And that's our hope. So anyway, we can leave that here. So um, I say I'll go on with Isaiah next week. I think I'll probably talk about what's called the Isaiah Apocalypse, that's chapters 24 to 27. Um, slight change of plan for me there, but uh, that's about the idea of the destruction of the world. But it's also very key for the, the of all things, is the belief in immortality and of life and of the resurrection. Um, and that's, that's quite a detailed, dense passages on Isaiah, you never end talking about that. It's often taught in courses on apocalyptic, but apocalyptic itself is also about resurrection. You know, whatever destruction there is, there's also rising again. So maybe do that next week, but for the moment, I think give you time to prepare. All right. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure to, uh, to sit here and listen to these uh, fascinating insights on uh, Isaiah. So, Father, until next time, same time, same place. We shall be back again next week. Okay, then. God bless. Bye. Now. God bless.